0: You know, long-term, you cannot be successful in digital first by thinking people second. It just won't work.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Sam Stern. But that was not my voice you heard at the beginning. My guest today on the CX Patterns podcast is Joe Wheeler. He has a new book out called The Digital First Customer Experience. I've read it, and Joe and I have a great discussion that I want to share with you in just a minute. But what struck me most about the book and our conversation is how many examples and recommendations Joe shared about how to create humanized digital experiences or digital-human experience combinations. That's why I started the episode with a quote from Joe. It was not just an excuse to show off my editing skills. Joe has been in the customer experience world for a long time. So he knows the importance of humanity in customer experiences. Humans evoke stronger emotional reactions than do digital interfaces. And stronger emotions lead to stronger memories. But what Joe has done in his book is figure out what the smartest companies are doing to take advantage of all the new digital experience capabilities to augment, heighten, or mimic the best elements of a human-delivered experience. We talk through some of those case studies in just a moment. But I wanted to emphasize that this conversation and this book, while ostensibly about digital experiences, touches a lot on human-powered experiences, too. That's what is striking to me about the best companies and how they approach this. All right, let's get to the conversation with Joe. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the CX Patterns podcast with Sam Stern. And I'm very excited today to be joined by Joe Wheeler. Joe is a customer experience expert, a technology innovator, consultant, fellow Massachusetts resident, and best-selling author with his latest book available for purchase as you are listening to this, The Digital First Customer Experience, Seven Design Strategies from the World's Leading Brands. And Joe features Nike, Starbucks, Amazon, Semex and other case studies. So leading brands is quite accurate. Joe, welcome to the CX Patterns podcast. Great, Sam. Great to be here. And I got a chance to read the book already. So have lots of notes, lots of questions for you. Listeners, I'm excited for you all to check out this book. There is so much great detail, so many good recommendations in it. It's well written too. It's fun to read. But I thought we could, Joe, go deep into the seven design strategies today. And rather than just going down the list and one by one, we could go through a few specific questions I have for you and talk about how listeners, many of whom are CX practitioners themselves, can apply these in their work. That sounds great, Sam. All right. So first, you know, there's seven and seven is not too many. And yet it's a lot if you're just starting out with all seven. So I was wondering if there are pairs or clusters of the seven design strategies that you see companies combining consistently for greater impact?
0: Yeah, great question. I mean, the, uh, there's a long answer and a short answer. The short answer is the, the two design strategies that kind of bookmark it. You know, this first one, achieve emotional peaks across channels, finishing strong, so ending on a high note. And then this last one, link digital assets to leverage value over cost. I was intentional about putting them first and seventh because they do serve as good bookends to all all seven. But that first one is important because one of the things that's different that I notice in companies in a digital first world, Sam, is, you know, for a long time, we thought about staging experiences, right? But what's different today is that the customer controls the journey. (laughs) If you think you do, you're misled because they're going to be on your website, your mobile app in the old days. When a customer just went to your store or used your catalog, you could stage it. But now it's more about structuring and making sure that you're designing experiences and structuring those that have multiple peaks, try to finish strong, obviously, depending on the touch points, but that have features that allow the customer to pause and resume easily, things like that.
1: So that's one that does incorporate quite a few of the
0: others, like choice and control, for example.
1: Yeah. As you were talking about that, I was thinking, oh, I think he's getting into the giving the the customer control and giving them that uh, the sense of choice. So yeah, I can see how you're combining those. And I loved that the book started with the the peak moments and ending on a high note, because, you know, it was such a good encapsulation of the, the peak end rule, popularized in Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, and really sort of leveraging his and Amos Tversky's decades of research into that topic. You had a really great case study and example in the book, of a company that has applied that in their work. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that just to give the listeners a specific example of how do you actually create those emotional peaks and how do you really emphasize ending on a high note in different experiences, especially as you described, when you're not always in control of when the experience is going to end from the customer's point of view. Well,
0: and Sam, I was really intentional to select Lemonade as the example of that Journey, because as I'm sure you know, Lemonade. But just for your listeners, this is yeah, insurance industry disrupt disruptor. But that's a very digital first mobile experience. For the most part, their customers interact with a chatbot named AI Maya. So AI Maya provides policy pricing, the whole thing, and then AI Gem is their claims bot. So when you lose your laptop, Sam, in a Starbucks because you weren't looking and someone took off with it. AI A.I.G.M. is who you interact with to try to get that insurance policy claim processed. And so isn't that interesting is is they're able to use some technology, some digital first technology to create multiple peaks. When you content code their their text and their MPS scores, is like as high as Apple's and Tesla's. Right. The word that pops out in a word cloud is love. So it's interesting. Here's a company that is really competing in a mobile first, digital first world. And they're achieving massive emotional peaks with technology. At the same time, they're very clever about it. So they're very domain specific. And as I like to say, when it comes to this type of work, the back end is the front end. You know, what makes that those multiple peaks happen isn't just the technology. It's also their business model, you know, because, as you know, they have a give back capability. So
1: they change the way that industry structures profitability for their company, at least. Yeah. A word cloud that leads with love in the insurance industry, I don't think is a common word cloud. So that really stands out. And I think that example of where they're giving to a charity and a charity of the customer's choice. What I loved about that is it aligns the customer and Lemonade. They're both they both had the same incentives. This money goes to charity. So it's not a battle between myself as the insuree. And Lemonade, as the company, is it going to be taken as profit for them or come back to me in, in a claim? But rather, we're kind of both hoping I don't have a claim. A claim is not a good experience for a customer. Ideally, you don't have one. And now I'm not thinking, well, what value am I getting for my money? And by the way, it's another peak moment that this money is going to a charity that I chose. It's exciting and it feels great. So I, I love that example because I think it's it's such a great, thoughtful change, as you said, to a business model. Well, and and Sam, there's two parts of that, right? There's The peak that it creates that you're able to
0: donate the leftover dollars from your premiums that aren't, you know, that don't get paid out in claims. But the second thing is think of what they've learned about you. So if you pick World Wildlife Society and I pick something else, do you know what I mean? They've learned something that helps with their segmentation model. So I often say a friend of mine made a a great question, which is, Joe, you know, lots of insurance companies have data scientists. What makes lemonade so different? And I, I, I kind of, there's a few things, but the one that I pointed out was, you know, with legacy insurance companies, Sam, if I was an agent, I might, you know, meet with you over at a Starbucks and get about 50, you know, 25, 30 data fields and say, Hey, it's four thirty. If we get that tree, we can probably be on the golf course in an hour and a half. Whereas AI Maya in 14 questions generates 1700 data points to be able to generate what the price should be. I mean, think about that for, for just a second. The level are. of quality, because AI only matters based on the level of quality of data that it uses, as we've learned over the last number of months. And so that to me is like a remarkable difference, how they design the front end and the back end, and then how a business model links uh, to that journey, that design of that journey that is part of their goal to scale
1: what will be a very big company, I think, someday. That's a great point. So I, I want to challenge you here on on one thing, because I think what what's fascinating about Lemonade and is exciting and innovative about their example. I can imagine if I'm listening to this and I work at an existing company with an existing business model, I'm saying, okay, well, sure, if we were starting from fresh, we would we could do some of these things. But very hard if we're retrofitting um, an existing company with an existing business model, right? If you're an insurer competing with Lemonade, you probably have insurance agents or you have all of this infrastructure in place. So how would you think about Applying some of those lessons when maybe you are constrained by the existing business model.
0: Yeah, geez, Sam, that's a great question, and I've only figured out two ways to address that. I mean, because the truth is, in the insurance industry, you know, listen, I think, I think legacy insurance companies, like the Lemonade co-founder said, you know, we're a technology company in the insurance industry, not an insurance company with an app. Like he made that kind of point clear. At the same time, I think, I think the challenge just to pick on insurance for a second, is less about technology and more kind of about their business model. You know, like they're kind of counting on on those dollars. Let me take that out of the equation because they charge a flat fee. So you know that from the, the case. But there's only two ways. One is we did work in the health insurance industry with a large client to redesign their whole Medicare Advantage journey. And, you know, just the conclusion was it would be faster to bring a new offering to market by building it sort of outside the legacy capability the only other way, if you don't take that type of a path, and you need to have a lot of executive sponsorship to be able to do that, Sam, is to is to think of the, organi- like the organization you will put together to go after that just has to be so multidisciplined and committed and real dollars behind it to get it done. Like, you know, my friend Rob Wilcott from Kellogg School of Management is an expert on this whole idea of how do you drive the core business at the same time? How do you reinvent that business and, and, and being able to do that with, you know, patience and understanding there'll be lots of failures just isn't the recipe a lot of companies are interested in these days who have quarterly shareholders looking for, you know, a better
1: dividend than they got the last quarter. Those are great lessons or great recommendations you're making. And then I would add to it, sometimes it's, it's helpful to have the, the, the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt coming at you. If you don't do this, Lemonade is here to do it and other disruptors and other industries. Amazon is here to do it, probably coming to your industry sooner rather than later. So I think your your point is well taken that you probably should be thinking about how do we disrupt our own business model or how do we work in a multidisciplinary way that we haven't done before, before someone else does it to us. And I think that's a good sort of point to, to transition into talking about the, the role of employees, the role of humans and humanness human qualities in a digital first experience, but I'm wondering because I hear a lot emphasis on scale, emphasis on taking cost out, emphasis on honoring the preference for self serve that we see a lot of times from executives talking to a customer experience team, and so I'm wondering how you, as a consultant coming into these companies, make the case for yep absolutely I wrote a book called digital first customer experience but we still need humans involved at some of these points. We still absolutely need a human quality to the experience, even when it's digital. How do you stress that that balance or that sort of the, the human quality can't come out even as we cut costs or give self-serve opportunities to customers?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I have a, you know, I'm doing the series of nine articles on LinkedIn, Sam, as you know, and, and I think the last one, I decided to make it last, not first, is does digital first mean people second? And of course, the answer is no, right? I mean... People are still the thing that make a, they deliver actual empathy. <laughs> they deliver actual emotional engagement. In fact, I wrote this book in part because one of my folks that I really, really admire, Milan Swanee at Kellogg, wrote this article that said, you know, it should be the aspiration of every com- company to deliver a touchless experience. And he wrote that in Forbes in the middle of COVID and, and lots of retailers, especially, you know, really didn't have their act together to be able to deliver on that. But, you know, I've probably opened every talk on this topic by quoting Charlotte Pierce, who said, you know, the truth is, you know, what makes a customer experience or what what makes a brand powerful is the emotional involvement of customers. So how do you reconcile those two things? And the truth is, the companies that are doing this really well have more people trained on human-centered design than you would imagine. Like, they really understand this. And so, you know, Just Walk Out Technology is a great example of this, and and it's about scale, and they will, and they'll license that out to other retailers, or Amazon will license that out. But what you see from folks like Hudson, who have piloted this at, at Love Field in Dallas, is it makes the cashier's job a great job. Like instead of standing, you know, my my daughter's a cashier part time, going to school, you know, that eight hours by hour eight is pretty heavy on the knees. So it makes their job more of a customer advocate. Now, sure, there'll be jobs in which. AI and other technologies will probably replace human roles. And you and I could probably think about what those are. But at the end of the day, from a customer experience design standpoint, if you can start to back to structuring experience at scale to create positive emotional outcomes like Lemonade and others do, and then complement those things when, it, when an interaction from a frontline person who's going to do a great job with that works, that's, that's the goal. I mean, that's the goal to try to create an emotional outcome that is, is scalable, but also consistent. Because as we know, when it comes to customer experience, as Sean and I wrote in our first book, you know, consistent, intentional, differentiated, and valuable. I mean, that's what we're,
1: that hasn't changed in 20 years. That's great. And I think that was, I was practically pumping my fist as I was reading that part of the book, but where you're elevating the role of that cashier to yeah. someone who is, you know, really guiding customers through the store. And and the, the Hudson newsstands in an airport is the classic example of where, most people aren't there often enough for, to know how it's laid out, and where everything is. And so they actually need that kind of guidance in the store. It would be really helpful. And, it, and it's a nice human moment to have in both directions over and over again. So imagine spending your day doing that all day rather than just, you know, taking a candy bar and a bottle of water from somebody and scanning them and giving it back. And I think you're getting at another thing that I want to ask you about, which is, you know, how do you engage employees to help create these more digital first and humanized digital experiences. And I think what you just said about elevating that role of that employee, I see what's in it for me. I'm not being cast aside, I'm being elevated.
0: Yes, and you know, my advice to anyone listening to your podcast is just read everything Howard Bahar has written on this topic and you'll you'll know everything you need to know. I had the pleasure of spending a bit of time with Howard on the Starbucks chapter and and it changed dramatically from after spending a bit of time with him because, you know, he understands... This relationship between the employee experience, the customer experience, and the the shareholder. This is a company that's coming back to build trust with their partners. You know, they land with mobile first member of Sandback. I think in twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen, they introduced the, the the digital flywheel and mobile payments. You know, was introduced, and what I think they just didn't anticipate was this happened simultaneously to the mix changed. 80% of their volume had been hot beverages. That moved to almost 80% being cold beverages. Well, the barista, you know, they, they, they could make a frappuccino, but it wasn't the same process as making a hot drink. And that really became problematic. But listen, you know, they're working hard. They're spending a billion dollars to reestablish trust with partners. I think it's really interesting how precise they're being around going after head on as quickly as possible the operational challenges that will change that BRIS's job. So their new siren
1: system will reduce the time it takes takes to make a frappuccino by two thirds. Think about that. I love that example because what I think is 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 important about it too is these companies aren't perfect. But what did they do? They said, okay, we've 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 got to recommit to our investment, our empowerment, our enablement. Of our partners. Starbucks is interesting for so many reasons, not the least of which what you just described, Sam. But the other
0: thing to me that is striking is, you know, this is the brand that taught us they paid more per hour. They gave health insurance to part-time employees. They were the first to do that, you know. And then the other thing that's odd is their business wasn't suffering. Like they were still growing revenue, percentage of digital, but long-term, you cannot be successful in digital first by thinking people second. It just won't work. You also need to figure out the, the frontline employee drivers too. We had a client and uh, we were building their balance scorecard as part of the overall customer experience engagement. And the head of operations showed up late for a meeting. And uh, my head of research was was kind of sharing the results of the employee loyalty driver research. And he came okay. in late and he was staring at the screen and he kind of, kind of, face kind of glazed over. I said, Lou, what's wrong? He said, Joe, you're not going to believe this. The reason I'm late, the number one driver for frontline employee satisfaction was smooth running equipment. It wasn't pay. It wasn't recognize me. It wasn't giving me better schedule. It was smooth running equipment in a convenience retail operation, right? That's really important. He said, I just came from a meeting where we were trying to decide if we could cut back the maintenance of those machines from four times a year to two times a year. This happens in companies every day. Someone yeah. who's like a really motivated financial manager goes, What are we fixing most machines four times in the stores, they seem fine. Let's cut that in half.
1: And changes the world for, for employees and customers without even knowing it. Wow. I wish I was more surprised by that story, but it sounds all too familiar. Well, Joe, thank you for joining me on the CX Patterns podcast. We appreciate it. Sam, great to be here. And maybe we'll grab a coffee in Cambridge one of these days. Yep, yeah, would love to meet in person, have a human <laughs> human moment, human connection where you we see each other on We can do at Starbucks, video. Sam. We can yeah, do it right. at a Starbucks. Give, a, right.
0: give Howard right. some incremental revenue.
1: Exactly, exactly. Listeners, I've linked to the book and Joe on LinkedIn in the show notes of this episode. So you can find him, you can find his articles, you can find a copy of the book. And again, I've read it, I recommend it. Thanks so much, Sam. A pleasure to spend time with you. As you heard Joe and I discuss, the best digital customer experiences have humanity integrated into them. But also, this is not all about how human the digital experiences can be. At their best, digital experiences take advantage of scale and speed that humans cannot match. The examples in Joe's book emphasize that whether it's the infinite customers that Lemonade's chatbot, AI Maya, can create insurance quotes for, or the true one-of-one personalization that Spotify's algorithm can offer to each of its listeners, there are really powerful digital capabilities available now that you can offer to your customers and that will complement and uplift the remaining human interactions. And also, the digital speed and scale brings more to the human-powered experiences. It elevates employees by freeing them up to spend more time creating meaningful, memorable moments with customers rather than having to do mundane stuff that isn't value-adding. I loved the example Joe highlighted from Hudson newsstands at airports and how they're leveraging Amazon's payment tech to allow employees to move away from low-value checkout interactions to higher-value store navigation interactions. I'm someone who is fully convinced by the research and data that show that human-powered experiences are better and more memorable. And I apply that lens whenever I can to our customer experience work at LinkedIn. But what Joe argued for persuasively is that you can bring more of what makes human-powered experiences memorable to your digital experiences. And also, that in many instances, you can free up humans from less important parts of the experience to focus on newer or better moments. In other words, your employees create new peaks while the rest of your experiences are not compromised. Thanks for listening. Follow me. Or connect with me on LinkedIn and you'll see the newsletter that accompanies each podcast episode and contains all of the details and links that support the information shared during this episode. Please do subscribe. That's the easiest way to make sure you don't miss the newsletter and to share an edition of CX patterns that you like with someone else. And yes, I would be most grateful if you did share. Feedback? This is a podcast about customer experience, so you know I'd love to hear from you. LinkedIn is the best place to share your questions, comments, and thoughts with me. Thanks to my colleague, Emily Tolmer, for creating the CX Patterns logo, and to my friends, Moon Island, for the music. That's all for now. I'll be back in two weeks with another customer experience pattern podcast episode.